Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including gathering times and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Brian Candelo. Good morning, church. Good morning. Welcome to Salem Alliance. For those watching on live stream, welcome as well. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I, I was actually just before the service down in our children's ministry and a little guy walked in and he looked at me and he said, you work here, right? I, yeah. He goes, you're Steve. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. No, you're Rob. No. And then he goes, oh, you're the silly pastor. <laughs> so um, you get what you get today, guys. Sorry, but welcome to Salem Alliance. So glad that you're here. We're uh, finishing up our series this morning called The Bible Says What? Where we're talking about some confusing and complex passages of scripture, the ones that we look at and they're kind of head scratchers and we don't exactly know what to do with them. Now, the first weekend of this series, Rob threw me under the bus and put my picture up there and said, if you have any real big questions to email me, and you did, and they were great and I appreciate that, but we just don't have time to cover all of the various questions that are in scripture. And so if you still have questions, I would love for you to talk to Ephraim. He's your guy. Talk to Efren. He would love to take you out for coffee and answer all of your questions. We're just not going to get to cover everything, so you can, you can talk to him. That's, that's his thing. Uh, we've also, as a practice, been reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we want to do that again this morning. We want to read this together. I realize sometimes that kind of public reading can be an exercise in monotone, but feel free to use some voice inflection. Would you read this with me? All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And what a beautiful reminder. We have a high value of scripture. We come under scripture and it's from God and it's useful. Even the passages that we don't quite understand. And we're going to dive into another one of those again this morning. Now, most companies have mission statements, statements that kind of tell us what they're all about. They're these short, quick statements that speak to values and direction. And I want to give you a few examples. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read some of these and feel free. You tell me what company these are. Here's the first one. To bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Nike. That's Nike. Um, to inspire and nurture the human spirit. One person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Starbucks. But don't you really feel like they're overselling it a little bit? <laughs> to inspire. Inspire and nurture the human spirit. Starbucks. It's a cup of coffee and a pastry, but uh, hey, whatever. All right, how about this one? A little tougher. To give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly. Twitter. That's Twitter's mission statement. Uh, we save people money so they can live better. It's Walmart. All right. Lastly, here's, here's another one. To refresh the world, 
to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, to create value and make a difference. That's Coke, Coca-Cola. <laughs> Once again, kind of overshooting what sugar water is. I don't know. Maybe the caffeine gets you, but th those are some, right? This, this, those statements are to keep those companies focused there so that they can see that goal and go after it. Now, the Gospels give us some examples of the mission statements of Jesus. And anywhere we read in the Gospel where Jesus says, I have come to, that's like us reading a mission statement of Jesus. And there's some great ones in Scripture. John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that you can have life and have it abundantly. A great mission statement. Luke 19, 10, where Jesus says, I have come to seek and save the lost. Another beautiful mission statement of Jesus. Well, this morning we're going to talk about two often overlooked and possibly confusing mission statements of Jesus. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, if you have your Bibles you can turn there, Luke 12, we're going to start at verse 49. Now, Jesus is talking to his disciples, but there's a crowd that has gathered around him. As a matter of fact, the beginning of this chapter says that there were thousands and they were stepping all over each other. So Jesus has this moment, right? He's in front of this crowd again, and he gets this opportunity to inspire, this opportunity to share his mission statement with all of these people. And so here's how he kicks it off. I have come to, right? So we know he's getting there. I have come to set the world on fire. And I wish it were already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No. I have come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. How's that for inspiration? <laughs> Jesus comes out and he throws these two mission statements out there. I've come to set the world on fire, and I just wish it was burning already. And then he says, I, I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to divide people against each other. What are we... What are we supposed to do with this? Because the gospel is usually understood to be a message of peace. And here Jesus comes out of the gate with mission statement of fire and division. I mean, what about Luke chapter 2 that we read every year at Christmas? It's the birth announcement that says, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Later on in Acts, Luke would write, this is the message of good news, that there's peace with God through Jesus who is Lord of all. And Jesus is like, nope, fire and division, no peace. As you walk out the doors of the sanctuary, you'll see our mission statement, our vision statement written up on the wall. Here's a picture of it. A city at peace with God. And we went with this vision statement because the other ones that we had picked weren't as motivational. See, it could look like this. A city of no peace, fire and division. <laughs> or my favorite one that we passed on, a vision of division, a city in pieces. And I wanted to redo that, but it was a little too labor-intensive for us in the lobby. But here's the thing. In these mission statements, Jesus is giving us the gospel. It doesn't seem like it at first, but he's telling us the path to freedom. But he's being real about it. Because he knows that the path to freedom is costly. The path to freedom 
is costly. There should be a warning label on this path, which is what Jesus is doing. There's going to be fire. There's going to be decisions that cause divisions. But there's the opportunity for freedom. There's the hope of true freedom. And we can read Luke chapter 12 and wonder why Jesus came out with this statement, because it doesn't seem like the Jesus that we know. It doesn't seem like the flannel graph Jesus that we learned about in Sunday school. But Jesus speaks these things because all around him, people are hanging on to ideas and aspirations of who Jesus should be and what his ministry should look like. And so Luke chapter 12 begins this this discourse about being faithful to the real truth of Jesus, about seeing who Jesus really is rather than trying to fit him into our own image. And Jesus says these mission statements as a way to get our attention. And we want to lean into them. All along, we've been talking about a toolbox in this series. Things that we could use as we approach difficult passages of Scripture. And, and so Rob, the first week, talked about paying attention to context. Don't just look at a difficult passage without figuring out what's before and after it. Efren talked about commentaries. There's a lot of really, really bright people who've done a lot of study and written it down for us. So we can read about these and get some other ideas. Last week, Rob talked about stepping back as well and seeing the whole narrative of Scripture. And I would add as the last thing in our toolbox, just this posture of humility. We want to approach Scripture humbly. We don't want to come thinking we have all the answers. We don't want to come to Scripture with our own agenda like, well, this is what it should say. We don't create truth. We discover truth. And so we want to discover truth this morning in this passage. And so look, let's look at this first mission statement. He says, I've come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning. What does Jesus mean by by fire? Is it like being on fire for Jesus? That's not what this means. Fire is used figuratively in Scripture Uh, quite often. It can mean God's word. It can be his message through the prophets. It can be the tongue or anger or lust or jealousy. And oftentimes, fire in scripture means judgment. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, says, one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's the same word. This is a transformational fire. This is a fire of purification, but it is also a fire of judgment. It's a, it's a fire that pronounces what is good and what's got to go. It's a fire that can destroy or save because that's what fire does. Like earthly fire does one of two things. It either destroys the temporary or purifies the lasting. Fire destroys the temporary or purifies the lasting. We know that fire removes the impurities from precious things. And we understand that with gold. When you put fire to gold in extreme heat and it purifies the gold. But we do not purify temporary things with fire. If you're having car trouble, you don't set your car on fire to make it better. I've had a vehicle that would have been better off set on fire, but that's not how it goes. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us this. It says that fire, the same word, fire will show us what is valuable. Some things will be destroyed and some will survive. Nothing will be left after the fire but the precious. So it's both severe and it's wonderful. It's brutal and it's beautiful. It's, it's brutal as we look at this fire. And, and we need this fire. 
We need this purification. We need this judgment, both in the world and also in us. And we're not usually too big on judgment. We love judgment for other people. We don't necessarily love judgment for ourselves. When other people mess up and do something wrong, we want judgment. When we mess up, we want mercy. If, if I get pulled over for speeding, hypothetically, a long time ago, um, I want mercy. I immediately want mercy. But if I get passed by a crazy driver, I want judgment. Uh, you know that joy when somebody passes you driving crazy and a little bit later you see them pulled over by a policeman and you're like, yeah got what you deserved, even though we don't want that for ourselves. We desperately need this fire of judgment to make things right. We need evil and injustice to be destroyed. We need it. That's why it says in Romans 8, it talks about eagerly awaiting. We, we wait with this hope for everything to be made right. We need it. But quite honestly, judgment's a heavy reality, isn't it? And maybe you don't even care about those mission statements. That word judgment to use one of those. The Bible says what kind of things. And it's something that maybe has stuck with you for a long time and just kind of grates against you. And, and maybe it just solidifies this image that you already have of God. That God's like this judge. He's the perfect punisher. He's the divine disciplinarian. And he's always looking at us with this kind of disapproving head shake. Mm. And he's waiting for us to kind of mess up so that he can act. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this idea that there is a fire, that there is this judgment? Now, I think there's two primary ways that people deal with it. I think one way is, is people just pretend that it doesn't exist. That there is no judgment. There is no judge. That way I can live exactly how I want to live without any consequence for my actions. But there's a price to pay with living this way. You see, the price to pay is actually despair. If you live that way too long, you end up in despair because slowly you begin to realize that right and wrong is just a construct of our imagination and that people can do whatever they want without any consequence and that oppression and injustice will always go on unchecked. And so if we live our lives like, ah, just there's no judge, there's no judgment, we're going to live our lives in despair. Or the other way that most people choose to live is to believe in judgment and yet be crushed under a weight of guilt for our entire lives. We understand this guilt, don't we? Especially at night when, when our brains wake us up and say, hey, I want to take you on a tour of everything that you did wrong in middle school. Anybody, anybody have those moments at night where your brain just wakes you up and it's like, yeah, I've made a list of everything you've done wrong your entire life. Let's read it together. And sometimes my brain tells me, you know, Jesus did all of his ministry in three years. What have you done? Feel insignificant yet? Sleep well. It's tough. See, we can pretend like, oh, it doesn't exist. Or we can understand that there's judgment and be crushed under guilt. See, if there is no judgment, what hope is there for the world? But if there is judgment, what hope is there for us? If there's no judgment, how will wrongs be made right? How will hurts be healed? When will injustice end? And if there is judgment, how am I supposed to stand up under the weight of everything that I've done wrong? 
Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Yes. Here's the thing, though. There's a beautiful and transformational truth in the next verse. And it doesn't seem like it at first, but let's, let's see that again. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Jesus says, I have a terrible baptism of suffering. What's he mean by that? You see, here's the thing. Jesus takes this fire. Jesus takes this judgment upon himself. He undergoes a baptism of suffering. He is rejected. He is persecuted. He takes the weight of the sin of the entire world, everything that we've done wrong. He experiences the wrath of God for us. He stands in our place. He pays the debt. Church, there's no way that any one of us could stand up under that baptism of suffering, under that judgment. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 10, two of his disciples, they, they come to him and they're like, Jesus, we know, we know we're your favorite. And so why don't you just give us these positions of importance, you know, one on your right, one on your left, and we'll do this thing together. And Jesus is like, oh, I don't think so. And the rest of the disciples are like, who do you think you are? But Jesus says, you can't do this. Because you can't bear the baptism of suffering that I'm going to bear. It's that terrible. None of us can stand up under the weight. But Jesus says here in this passage, I come to bring the fire, and I wish the fire was already burning. Because he knows that when he goes through this judgment, when he carries this burden for us, that it will bring about our salvation, our healing, and our freedom. He wishes to suffer and save us at the same time. Then he can bring to completion what it was that he came to accomplish. You see, in this judgment, in this transformational fire, sin is destroyed. Death is destroyed. And Jesus remains. And Jesus is alive. Church family, that's the gospel. That's what we celebrate. That's what we sing about. That's why we worship. This is the path to our freedom. And this makes Jesus uniquely qualified to be the judge. Acts 17 says that because of his life and death and resurrection, he's qualified to be the judge. And so the father has given the responsibility of judgment to the son. Jesus is responsible to be the judge. And it's important to remember that that's not our role. We're not supposed to be the judge. We're unqualified for the job. Not for other people or even for ourselves. And maybe somewhere we get that we're not supposed to judge other people even though we like to do that. But but we end up being pretty harsh on ourselves, pretty down on ourselves. You know what? That's us being the judge as well. We're not supposed to do that. There already is a perfect, just judge who paid it all for us. We sang about that earlier. He paid the debt. He endured the fire of judgment because we couldn't. He created a path for our freedom, but it's costly. It was costly to him. It's costly to us. Because that second mission statement that we read earlier says that there is going to be division. And so we have to make a decision based on what we know Jesus did for us, but it's going to be decision that causes division. Jesus says, do you think 
I have come to bring peace to the earth. No, I've come to divide people against each other. That word for divide, division, it's the only place that that word's used in the entire New Testament. And it's supposed to be a very strong word. It means diametrically opposed. It's not just about having a fracture. It's about fighting. It's like a fist fight. It's saying that when you make a decision to follow Jesus, there's going to be some fist fights, which is tough to hear. All based on a decision. We make decisions every day. We make decisions on what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, what show we're going to binge watch. Every once in a while, we get to make more significant decisions like, where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? Should I start a family? Should I buy an Android or an iPhone? Should I root for the ducks or the beavers? Uh, Duck fans? Beaver fans? Yeah, yeah. Every service, guys, the beaver fans have. So there it is. Um, There you go. We've established. Um, For the most part, right? For the most part, these decisions are innocuous. I mean, they're big decisions, but they don't cause lasting division. But Jesus is saying in this passage, the most important decision that we will ever make, which is our response to him, will put us at odds with other people. You see, standing with Jesus isn't always popular. Aligning with his kingdom will cause division among friends and family. And think of what happens to families all over the world in areas that have different religions when people make a commitment to Jesus. It causes significant division. It happens there, but it also happens here. And it isn't just like, oh, it's a high probability that there will be division. No, it it pretty much reads like it's a sure thing. We are going to be at odds with some people. It isn't just a consequence. It's almost a confirmation. When we pursue God's purpose and plan, we're going to foster opposition from those who are chasing contrary things. And so Jesus gives this mission statement, and here's what he declares. The decision to follow me is more important than just keeping the peace. And that's tough for us to hear. The decision to follow Jesus is more important than keeping the peace. But yet at church, we always talk about peace, and we always talk about unity, and it's difficult to kind of hear something like that. Now, there are, there are some extremes to this. I think at one end of the spectrum, there's this idea that I don't want to do anything that causes division. I don't want to do anything that puts me at odds with anyone else. I'm an Enneagram 9. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. It's a, it's a personality test. And so, uh, yes, I have one. And yes, I'm a 9. And 9 is just that I'm a peacemaker. So my life philosophy is, why can't we just get along Why can't we all get along? But the difficulty with that and the difficulty of kind of living at this extreme of always just being like, let's just all get along, is that oftentimes our convictions will soften when confronted by the hard convictions of other people. It's like Ephesians chapter 4 says that we can be blown about, tossed about by every different wind. And we can live over here and and never want to kind of make any waves or ripples. But I think at the other end of the spectrum is a different group of people. And I think maybe that this is a growing group of people who purposefully and joyfully embrace division. Even within the church. People who chase after it, who begin to mistreat others, who behave badly. And yet in the church, justify their bad behavior by calling it 
righteous indignation. And church, we can't do that. That can't be us. Yes, there will be division. We can't live over here. There's going to be some decisions that we make that will put us at odds with other people. But we can't be over here either. Division is not an excuse to mistreat people. If there is division, it should be with tears and grace and humility and over Jesus only. You see, Jesus understands the rejection. Jesus understands the strong reaction he's causing, but his plan is big enough to cover it. And so when he kind of closes this discourse, he kind of gives two pictures, two kind of word pictures to help us understand these mission statements. And they're kind of practical applications for us. And the first one that he gives is this. He says, we need to be people who can discern the signs. Really, he's saying kind of wake up and pay attention. So he uses this picture of the weather. And he's talking to them and he says, you know, when the weather comes out of the west, you know that it's bringing moisture off the Mediterranean and it's going to rain. West wind, rain. You can read that natural sign. When the wind comes up out of the south, it's bringing the heat from the desert. It's going to be a scorcher. South wind, it's going to be hot. You can read that natural sign. But you're missing the supernatural signs. Jesus is like, I'm here. The blind see, the lame walk. You're missing it. And so wake up and pay attention. We know how to live in the natural world, but we need to understand that there is a supernatural. And Rob touched on this really well last week. It's, and it's okay to understand the natural things. We should understand the natural things. But we need to understand that the true reality is the supernatural things. C.S. Lewis calls the earth the, the shadow lands. We're living in the Shadowlands. He says that this is all just the title page to the real story. Chapter one begins when we pass away. And when we spend it with Jesus, it's the best story ever told. And each chapter is better than the one before. And so this knowledge that there is a supernatural, that there are other things are going on, should shape all of our decisions. And so we need to be a people who can discern the signs. We need to wake up and pay attention to bigger things going on around us. And then he gives one more picture. He says, when you're on the way to court with your accuser, try to settle the matter before you get there. Otherwise, your accuser may drag you before the judge who will hand you over to an officer who will throw you into prison. And if that happens, you won't be free. And Jesus is saying, all right, it's time to settle your account. It's time to settle our accounts. It's time to make a decision because we will one day stand before the judge. And in, and in this illustration, the assumption is, is that we're guilty. And the assumption is that, you know, this is not going to go in our favor, that there's an urgency to this story, that you're kind of getting there in a hurry. And so what decision will we make knowing that we will stand before a judge? But Jesus has already given us the gospel. He's already told us the gospel message. You see, God's 100% love, but he's also 100% just. And because he's 100% just, it means that there has to be a payment for that sin debt. Because there is sin, because we have sinned, there needs to be payment for that. But because he's 100% love, he gave his son to die in our place, to carry that weight for us, to bear under that judgment. 
That's the gospel. We have a choice to make. We have a decision to make. Jesus says just a few chapters earlier that we have to give up our own way. We have to deny ourselves. If we try and hang on to our own lives, if we try and do everything in this natural world, if we just think that's the end, we're going to lose our lives. But if we surrender our lives to Jesus, if we accept the sacrifice, the gift, then we will save our lives. There's a cost. There's a cost to following Jesus, but there's a greater cost for rejecting him. I think the perfect illustration of this happens just a few chapters earlier in the book of Luke. We have this woman who comes before Jesus. She's called a sinful woman. All of us are sinful. That's just no statement on her. That's just who she is labeled there, but it's all of us. And she comes and she falls at the feet of Jesus in surrender, and she anoints his feet with this very costly, very rare perfume. And this decision to surrender to Jesus, it causes division almost immediately because there's religious leaders in the room who are angry, who are frustrated, and this just widens their divide with Jesus. But Jesus looks at her and he says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. You know, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring division. There will be division. Not everybody will have peace, but there, are, there is peace for those who decide to follow Jesus. The path to freedom is costly, but it's there. There's hope. Every weekend at Salem Alliance, we make two invitations. We invite people for prayer because we believe in the power of prayer. And we also invite people to the cross. We invite people to the cross to surrender. And I want to offer that invitation again today. The worship team is going to come up. We're going to have two more songs in closing. But I want to invite you to the cross if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've heard the gospel today. You understand that Jesus has come in and he has borne that judgment for all of us. And so he's saying, surrender. Surrender and find freedom. Surrender and find life. And so church family, as we sing these closing songs, I'll be over by the cross. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Would you come? Would you come to the cross? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the gospel that speaks life and salvation and healing and freedom over us. And I pray that you would stir in this room right now for those who have not put their faith in you that you would stir, that you would move. Jesus, we want to find freedom in you. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit SalemAlliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.